When you shop for beef, pork, or chicken in your grocery store, what you see are refrigerator cases full of animal products packaged in neatly wrapped plastic. It's a clean, sanitized picture that hides the filth and cruelty inherent in raising animals for slaughter and for your dinner table. Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. You may have heard the term factory farming. It refers to the way billions of animals live from birth to death in tight cages and crates, standing in their own excrement and in polluted, even toxic air. According to several sources, 99% of farm animals, including cows, pigs, chickens, and turkeys in the U.S. are raised on factory farms. 10 billion animals are raised for food each year just in the U.S. Compassion in World Farming is an organization that began in 1967 when a British farmer took a stand against this type of intensive animal farming. Their mission is to end all factory farming all over the world. Their campaigns have changed the way animals are raised on some farms by removing cages and crates and improving living conditions for the animals. My guest is a young woman, Ali Molinaro, who is campaigns coordinator for Compassion in World Farming. Like other people we featured on Mothering Earth, she is passionate about creating a more sustainable and kinder world. She began by describing the mission of Compassion in World Farming. Compassion in World Farming is an international nonprofit organization whose mission is to peacefully end all factory farming practices. Factory farming is the leading cause of animal cruelty, one of the biggest drivers of climate change, deforestation, and biodiversity loss, and it has significant impacts on our communities and public health. We work directly with food businesses to help them transition to higher welfare systems and offer more plant-forward options. We also work on farm-to-animal policy to drive the transition to a more humane, sustainable, and equitable food system. Compassion in World Farming was actually started by a dairy farmer named Peter Roberts in England in 1967. He became horrified by the rise of industrialized animal agriculture, where instead of roaming on pastures, animals were shoved into cages and crates and essentially being treated as commodities instead of as living beings with wants and needs. And so he set out to take a stand against the injustices that factory farming was creating. Today, we have offices in the US, UK, multiple countries across the European Union, South Africa, and China. But the uh, organization has a difficult mission because uh, especially meat eaters generally don't want to hear about how the meat on their plate was raised or that their steak has a costly carbon footprint. So what convinced you to join the organization and take on this difficult mission of ending factory farming? Was there a particular event or person involved, or did you just come to this over time? I was very comfortable with plant-based alternatives, even before the term plant-based really existed. Then I went to college for environmental science. Growing up, I was always very concerned about wildlife and the environment. 
And while I was in college, I read an article in The Guardian that said the best thing you can do for the planet is eat less beef. And that really stuck in my head because I thought the best thing you could do would be to drive less or use solar power, you know. But this was something that was not only surprising, but also so easy and actionable. So I stopped eating beef almost immediately. After I learned more about the environmental impacts of animal agriculture, my diet became increasingly plant-based. And it was actually several years later that I really started to learn about the severity of the animal cruelty that went on in the factory farming industry. And that's when I felt like I could no longer be just an activist. I needed to make ending factory farming my career. I like to say that I came to this movement for the environment, but I had stayed for the animals. Why do you think people should be concerned about living conditions of, of animals, cows, pigs, goats, chickens? The atrocities faced by the farmed animals in America's food system are beyond imaginable. Just some of the common practices we see include pigs and cows being kept in crates so small that they are unable to turn around and can hardly lie down. Egg-laying hens are confined in cages so small that they are unable to fully spread their wings with space no larger than the size of an iPad. And we aren't talking a few days. This is for their entire lives. Most of these animals never set foot on grass and never see direct sunlight. When it comes to dairy cows, pigs, and laying hens, many of them don't even get bedding. They stand on metal slats that allow their waste to fall through so it can be more easily collected and taken to manure lagoons nearby. The farmed animals of today have also been bred for the highest production value possible, significantly compromising their quality of life. The chickens we use for meat now, for example, grow so large so quickly that they can hardly walk as their legs and organs cannot support their own body weight. Many suffer ammonia burns on their skin from laying on urine-soaked litter for hours on end. And by the time they're slaughtered, they are the weight and age equivalent of a 400-pound eight-year-old. Which brings me to another point that many of these animals' lives are cut significantly short. Chickens can live for over six years, but the chickens raised for meat today are slaughtered at only six weeks old. Cows can live for over 20 years, but typically die or are killed after three years of milk production when they are four or five years old. And in the egg industry, male chickens that hatch are considered a waste product because they can't lay eggs. And so they are killed at only a day old. Oftentimes, they're killed by being dumped alive into a grinder. Now, if someone engages in any of these abuses on, say, a dog or a cat, the ASPCA is busting down their door with possible criminal charges. Right. No one could imagine keeping their pet in a tiny cage their whole life without a chance to play or run or scratch or dig, you know? But... Many of these abuses in factory farms are akin to those that animals suffer in the fur industry or in circuses, which folks have been extremely passionate about over the years. 
Right. Even animals in scientific research have extensive legal protections, and any scientist who violates them can be banned from working with lab animals for the rest of their careers. And yet, farmed animals suffer these abuses every day. In the United States, there are no federal laws regulating how farmed animals are raised and treated until they are sent for slaughter. You don't necessarily have to be a vegan to care or be active on these issues either. We're talking basic welfare improvements, like giving farmed animals space to walk or a chance to go outside. I think anyone who wants to leave the world a better place than they found it can care about farmed animal welfare. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here today with campaigns coordinator Ali Molinaro. She works with Compassion in World Farming. Um, so uh, now meat and dairy production also has a powerful uh, damaging effect on the environment, which you mentioned earlier. Can you talk about some of those effects on the environment? It's hard to exaggerate the environmental impacts of meat production, First of all, the livestock industry accounts for 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is more than the direct emissions from the transportation sector. And some scientists believe that number is actually closer to 16 or even 20%. One report in the journal Science found that even if we halted all fossil fuel emissions right now, The current trends of our global food system would make it impossible to meet the 1.5 degrees Celsius target of the Paris Agreement. The livestock sector is also unique in that most of its greenhouse gas emissions consist of methane and nitrous oxide instead of carbon dioxide. Just a little over a quarter of its emissions are actually CO2. The reason why that's important is because methane and nitrous oxide don't last as long in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, but they are much more powerful greenhouse gases. So in the short term, and by short we're talking maybe 20 to 50 years, they can have serious effects on our climate. And in the U.S., livestock create 37% of our methane emissions through digestion and manure which is even more methane than is emitted by the domestic oil and gas industry. Right. Now, in addition to climate, there are multiple environmental impacts. And when evaluating these impacts, you need to consider not only all the inputs that are needed to raise the livestock, but also the inputs needed to produce livestock feed, the land, the water, the fertilizers, the pesticides, the herbicides, the fungicides, the fossil fuels for the on-farm machinery and transportation, all of those resources are also used, each of which have their own environmental impacts. For example, fertilizers can cause harmful algal blooms, which can be toxic and cause low oxygen conditions that can kill thousands of fish at once. Pesticides and other chemicals destroy microorganisms in the soil and can kill pollinators and birds. The land use produce livestock and their feed also wipes out entire habitats and ecosystems. Corn and soy are two main components of animal feed, both of which are also human edible crops. And yet, 
70% of all corn and three quarters of all soy produced globally is fed to livestock. A lot of soy, corn and beef production occurs in Brazil, more specifically the Amazon region, which represents not only a huge carbon sink, but also the most biologically rich area of the world. So as the rainforest is cleared to make room for fields and pastures, we are losing a lot of biodiversity and releasing even more carbon into the air that was being stored in the soil and vegetation. The Amazon region is just one example of this, but really we are losing habitats and biodiversity all over the world because of meat production. Right. It's happening right here in America's prairies and temperate forests as well. What's also interesting is that some of the world's most beloved animals like wolves, lions, and tigers that are hungry and forced to live near humans due to habitat loss are then killed by ranchers to protect their livestock, putting added survival pressure on these predator species. And the United States plays a huge role in animal agriculture's environmental impacts. We are the world's largest beef, poultry, and dairy producer, the second largest pork producer behind China, and the world's largest beef consumer. We're also a major producer of corn and soy for feed. I've tried to cover some of the main points here, but the ripple effects of meat production on the environment are so vast that it's difficult to fully capture them all in a few minutes. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm talking today with Ali Molinaro. She's campaigns coordinator for Compassion in World Farming. And uh, so now uh, another thing that's used widely in factory farms is antibiotics, and uh, that eventually results in harming human health. Can you talk about that connection? Sure. The conditions on factory farms are highly conducive to disease outbreaks. These animals are physically and psychologically stressed, so they have weakened immune systems, they are overcrowded, and a lot of times the conditions are unsanitary. So to combat this, some factory farms routinely give their animals antibiotics as a preventative measure. The problem is antibiotics are meant to be used only when a human or animal is sick, not preemptively. That's because as bacteria multiply and spread, some of them can become resistant to antibiotics. What's really going on is Charles Darwin's survival of the fittest. Antibiotics can do a great job at killing off germs, but there will inevitably be a select few who survive. It's the same as with your household cleaner that says it kills 99.9% of germs. <sighs> well, the 0.1% the who survive the antibiotic reproduce, and then those offspring reproduce. And over time, those resistant bacteria become the new dominant strain, which is bad for us because it means that the antibiotic we were using will no longer work. However, as you mentioned, the livestock industry's overuse of antibiotics doesn't only put farm animals at risk for antibiotic-resistant infections. About 80% of all antibiotics sold in the United States are given to animals while only 20% are used on humans. 
and most of the ones used on animals are also medically important for us. Antibiotic-resistant infections, otherwise known as superbugs, have been identified by the WHO and CDC as the next major public health crisis. Cases have been found in every U.S. state and every country across the world. According to the CDC, over 2.8 million antibiotic-resistant infections occur in the U.S. alone each year. The WHO says these infections can cause 10 million deaths over the next few decades if things don't change, which is terrifying, you know? Imagine being told that you have a disease that used to be curable, but now it's mutated into such a robust form that doctors can't cure you. Another damaging aspect of factory farming are the working conditions of the people who work in the system. Uh, What are those conditions like? Can you uh, give us a picture of that? The horrors witnessed and endured by factory farm and slaughterhouse workers are difficult to imagine. Some slaughterhouse workers have described the conditions as a vision of hell. Just as an example, chickens are typically slaughtered by hanging them upside down by their feet in shackles, dunking them in electrified water, and slitting their throats. These workers are watching thousands of birds die like this, day in and day out. When a dairy cow gives birth, if her baby is male, he's taken away days or even hours after birth to be raised on a veal farm. And if you go on YouTube, you'll find videos of mother cows screaming and running after the truck as her baby is being taken away. My point is, someone has to be the one to do all these things. Someone has to hang those chickens, shove that calf on the truck, dump those day-old chicks on a conveyor belt into the grinder. But these people aren't the bad guys in this story. There are people like you and me. I think one headline about slaughterhouse workers hit the nail on the head when it said, who would want to kill for a living, you know? Many workers are immigrants who have maybe faced significant trials and tribulations, just trying to put food on the table for their families. And this work is all they have. But factory farms and slaughterhouses negatively impact their families as well. These facilities are often located next to low-income communities and communities of color, where a lot of these workers and their families live. And some residents have reported that Just the smell alone outside of their homes is absolutely horrid. But the facilities are also spewing out air and water pollution, like hydrogen sulfide, particulate matter, and ammonia that increase incidence of asthma and bronchitis. I was listening to Nsedu Obat Witherspoon, the executive director of the Children's Environmental Health Network, And she said that reducing meat consumption and the prevalence of factory farms will improve air and water quality and lower rates of heart disease, high blood pressure, and stroke. We also know that prolonged exposure to the pollution from factory farms can increase the risk of lung disease and heart attacks. Now, what's scary is that this was coming from the Children's Environmental Health Network.
You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm talking today to Ali Molinaro. She's campaigns coordinator for Compassion in World Farming. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, about two years ago, a group of scientists called the EAT Lancet Commission uh, uh, made a report on what they called planetary boundaries, which are points beyond which the Earth's resources basically collapse. Uh, they described global scientific targets for healthy diets and for a food production system that is sustainable and which does not result in collapse. How does Compassion in World Farming use that data? Yes, I know the Eat Lancet report quite well. And for any listeners who don't know, the Lancet Commission is a group of 37 scientists from a variety of backgrounds who put together a report that basically says that in order to improve public health, stay within planetary boundaries, and feed an estimated population of 10 billion people in 2050, we need to double global consumption of fruits, vegetables, nuts, and legumes, and reduce the consumption of meat and sugar by over 50%. Right. Compassion in World Farming sees the solution to ending factory farming as twofold. First, we need to transition to higher welfare systems for farmed animals. But second, we need to reduce the consumption of animal products. And that's because, as the Eat Lancet report so eloquently lays out, when you crunch the numbers, our planet simply cannot sustain the unnatural amount of livestock we have today. Factory farming has crammed billions of animals into a relatively small amount of space. And so what we started to realize is that if we were to give all those animals the proper access to pasture and the room they need for a higher welfare life, there simply wouldn't be enough arable land to do that. It's also just not feasible at the farm level at scale. Right. For instance, egg-laying hens in conventional factory farming systems are stacked in cages several tiers high, with each hen given space no larger than an iPad. So if you were to ask a farmer with 100,000 hens kept in this way to now give all his hens at least one square foot of usable floor space, now he may only be able to fit 30,000 hens in that same warehouse. So for that reason, and there are other factors that come into play as well, if we want better welfare for farmed animals, we also need to reduce the number of livestock in the system. And we use the Eat Lancet data to help get that point across to companies and explain to them why it is equally important to invest in not just higher welfare products, but also plant-based products as well. Right. Compassion and World Farming actually spoke about this at last year's UN Food Systems Summit in a call to action, particularly for companies in the global north to resize the livestock industry. So uh, Compassion and World Farming has several programs aimed at working toward the goal of ending factory farming. Uh, and I understand one of them is called the Sustainable Food Program. Can you talk about that? The Sustainable Food Program helps companies rebalance their protein portfolios to make their operations more sustainable and more secure for animals, people, and the planet. What that essentially means is we are helping food businesses like restaurants, retailers, and hospitality groups 
not be so heavily reliant on animal source products and instead have a variety of offerings by incorporating more plant-based meals. It became apparent to us that in order to achieve higher welfare for farmed animals, we also need to reduce our overall reliance on animal sourced foods. So the food business program focuses on implementing higher welfare systems and standards for livestock, while the sustainable food program focuses on creating more holistic and plant forward business practices. The food business team has worked with many companies on creating or improving their animal welfare policies, particularly to raise the baseline standards for laying hens and broiler chickens through commitments such as cage-free and the better chicken commitment. Last April, Compassion and World Farming launched the broiler working group, broiler being the industry term for chickens raised for meat with the goal of creating a safe space for companies to share their knowledge, successes, and challenges to support each other in a unified shift toward higher welfare. We now have companies from across industries participating in that group, and they include Target, Shake Shack, Nestle, Aramark, Compass Group, Sodexo, and Panera Bread. Right now, we're also working with a national restaurant chain on expanding their plant-based offerings, an international hospitality and entertainment company, and even a pet food company. Hmm. We've also worked directly with producers to help pilot and implement higher welfare practices on their farms. In addition to working with food-related businesses, Compassion in World Farming has an online tool where you can evaluate your diet and its impact on the environment. And you can find some delicious plant-based recipes to try out. Find it at their website, ciwf.com. So how important to you personally is the goal of ending factory farming? I think ending factory farming is the next big challenge of our generation. The last few decades have been focused on ending the use of fossil fuels, mostly in transportation and energy. And we have made significant progress in that space with renewable energy, electric cars and appliances, and general acceptance that we must completely stop using fossil fuels in the next 20 or 30 years. I think that factory farming is going to be that next big ticket item. As we've covered today, factory farming is causing billions of animals to suffer unnecessarily, destroying our planet, heating our climate, having devastating public health impacts, perpetuating social injustices, and burdening vulnerable communities. And so ending it could have huge benefits. One study that came out this year by researchers at the Institute of Environmental Sciences at Leiden University in the Netherlands found that if the world's wealthiest nations shift from animal-based foods to plant-based foods, we could cut agricultural greenhouse gas emissions by 61%. And if we let all that freed up land rewild to its natural state, we could sequester almost 100 gigatons of CO2 equivalent. This measure alone would fulfill the US's obligations for carbon sequestration. It's a tough road ahead, but 
like I said, if we could make all this progress reducing our reliance on fossil fuels, I think we could certainly do the same to reduce our reliance on animal source food. Choosing to move to a plant-based diet is the most powerful thing you can do to mitigate climate change. And eating is something you do every day. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell people you know about Mothering Earth and leave us a review on your podcast platform. And until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news.